Podcast of the Cinema. I'm Alonzo Duraldi, and I know when I've been insulted by you, Dave White. What? When did I? Wait. I, Dave White, have not recently insulted you. Oh, yes. What did I do? During the pre-show, I bring up... When did I insult you? I bring up the Barbara Streisand hit single, Superman. And then when you profess to not know what I'm talking about, I sing a bit of it for you. And then you claim that I butchered the melody so badly that you couldn't possibly know what it was. And I would say, since you don't know what this song is, how would you know if I butchered the melody? Hmm? Um, I am looking... (laughs) Up on the internet right now. Uh huh. There's a 1977 album by yes. Barbara Streisand called Superman. Yes. On which she is uh, posing in a cutie, sexy way. Yes. Wearing only a Superman t shirt. Now, track listing on this, there were two. Singles released. One of them was My Heart Belongs to Me. I know that one. Yes. I know that song. That was a hit single. It was. Superman was not released as a single. Hmm. So when you say... Well, it's on Greatest Hits Volume 2. Is it? Yes. That's how That's how I first encountered it as a child. Hmm. Uh, In any event, I don't mm. appreciate you bad-mouthing I'm my... just saying this. I'm saying this thing right here. That you are, let's just say, objectively speaking, not as good a singer as Barbara Streisand. Yeah, well, neither is Leah Michelle. And also true. Also, because this is a song I don't think I know, uh-huh. I don't know... Yes... Clearly, I don't know if you're butchering the melody, but I heard what you did that no one else heard. I heard the mic check (laughs) of what you did. And the first thing you did was just recite lyrics. And then the second thing you did was try to belt them out a la Songbird. Well, I'm I'm trying to get you to recognize it. How else would I? Do you want me to do the Leonard Cohen cover? Did he cover it too? No, but I'm just saying. All right. Do you ever do the Tom Waits mumble version? I would, well, no, that's that's my karaoke. Uh, <laughs> it in, should be interpretation. Dave White's Romeo is bleeding. I don't know. I, I in a, in a court, I don't know that it would be. I would be found guilty of insulting you. Mm. In if we brought this to judge. Uh, Mathis. You use the phrase butcher the melody. I want to say that, well, that's insulting. Compared to Barbara Streisand, okay, well, aren't we all butchering melodies? That's not the standard. Uh, uh, you're singing her song, ain't you? <sighs> anyway, hi. We're I recently <laughs> heard someone talk about uh, how when anyone tries to cover songs by 
that are that are that are known from mm-hmm. people like Barbara Streisand, Aretha Franklin, etc. That and here's the quote, and I, I don't know if he invented this expression, but if he didn't, fine. The song turns to ashes in your mouth. <laughs> and that to me is what you did to that song by Barbara Streisand. It's just, I'm just guessing. How dare you? Having said this, you have been singing to me in the, in the privacy of our, of our love nest. Yes. For 29 years. Yes. Going on 29 years. And I love it when you sing to me. It's just for me. Sometimes I understand what you're singing. Sometimes I understand the melody of the song you're singing. Sometimes I recognize the song. And sometimes I think, he's really hitting those notes. And it sure does sound pretty. And sometimes sometimes, you feel the need to insult me. Sometimes I don't know what you're doing. Fine. Can I I praise you about something? What's that? Well, your outfit today. (laughs) You're telling a color story. (laughs) You're telling a story in pattern and texture. And it's a story I'm that is, it is akin a to a pinball machine and that it is bouncing off of many different, many different <laughs> lights and colors and things. Like, you knew you weren't leaving the house. It's very cold and rainy outside today. It's, it's a flash flood, actually, warning yes. situation today. And, and you knew you weren't going anywhere and you dressed for the occasion. <laughs> exactly. To you, be seen by no one. You, you, you got on like... A, a checked shirt and plaid pajama bottom, bottoms and a like a, a multi-hued ribbed textury wool sweater. I have no idea what's going on. Uh, I am built for comfort, baby. Yes, I, I ain't built I'm, for speed. I, I'm just saying, I th- I like I like <laughs> I like the look. I like the look of what you got going on today. Thanks. It makes you feel. It makes you appear to be uh, upbeat and ready for podcasting. I am. I am not. I'm failing at life on all levels, <laughs> and and would rather just be hiding under the covers. This of is the a bed day, today. this is a day in which one questions why get out of bed because uh, it is cold and bleh. Well, yeah. Amongst all the other If it life were a things. dreaded sunny day, I'd still be failing at life today and not Fair particularly uh, enthusiastic about the proceedings. Um, Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. But I've got a podcast to record, and I'm here to record a podcast. Well, let's do it. It's then. my job. My job as a film critic of no repute is to record this podcast. We've got movies to talk about. We do. Two of the movies that we will not be talking about on this particular episode are Lisa Frankenstein and Madame Webb, because I haven't seen them yet. Mm-hmm. My goal... And you my, think you're going to. My job... What do you mean you think? I know what to do with, with my car and my feet and my, my AMC Stubbs membership. I would question if those are the priorities for you right now, but you know, um, you, it's your call. I'll tell you what's going on at, at my beloved art houses in this city, uh, my city, Los Angeles. Uh, Academy Award nominees, yes. all of which I've seen for the most part. I mean, there are some that I haven't, but uh, stuff I've stuff I've seen, stuff that's not. I mean, like 
you know. So all that's currently going on is mainstream releases and catching up on, you know, the the Academy Award nominated things. Right. Which I'm still doing. Yeah. But so what you think I'm going to do and what I'm going to do are maybe two different things. Okay, fine. I, I plan, my plan, my goal is to get out there to Madam Webb and, and, and Lisa Frankenstein. All right. Yeah. I thought it was going to happen this weekend with the friend who was visiting in town, but nope. COVID stuck him in a hotel room the whole weekend. Right, so. It was garbage. I uh, now have the... Oh, yeah, you got to unplug that. Got to make a humming, humming noise if you don't unplug that thing right there. There we go. Uh, now our sound fidelity is perfect. Oh, yes. Yeah. You did see a film I am not going to go see. And the reason I'm not going to go see it is because I can smell the the standard issue biopic <laughs> all over it. I memorized the trailer. <laughs> As did we all. That they showed 1,000 times. Sometimes it felt like they were showing it twice before <laughs> a film. And it has nothing to do, my, my refusal to go see this has nothing to do with the subject matter because I like Bob Marley. Yeah. Who doesn't like Bob Marley? He's a, a, a legend. Yes. Would I watch a documentary about Bob Marley? Is there, does one exist? I believe there is Bring one, it yeah. to me. I will watch that documentary. I haven't. But aside from them casting an actor who's hot. And talented. Also talented as an actor. What, what does Bob Marley One Love have to offer <sighs> me, a person who has seen an untold number of by the numbers, boring, yeah. wrote, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, biopics of historical figures, musical geniuses, etc. Yeah, not please, much. Please tell me. Not much. Bob Marley, One Love, just, yeah, sort of skates along the surfacey surface of, of who Bob Marley was and why he matters, and... I, you know, like I'm, I'm familiar with, you know, the hits. Didn't know a lot about his life. And now that I've seen the movie, I feel like I still don't know that much about his life. Um, what happens and then what happens? Well, they, you know, they, they, for the most part, they do try to limit it to a specific period of his life with some flashbacks thrown in. So it's not, it's not a fully like, you know, this and this I and was this and born this. and then yeah. I became a, a reggae superstar. Exactly. Okay. But uh but the but it operates in the in the vaguest notions of what it's even about. Like we the, the film opens and you get this title crawl explaining how it's like it's nineteen seventy seven and there's this contentious political election going on in Jamaica and the country has been rift in two and he's trying to like host this concert that's gonna unify everybody. And you're already like, well, well, why is it rift in two? And who are these political parties? And who ripped what, it? And what do, what they, do they do? want? And, and what do they represent? Right. And why are they? Why are people dead set against each other? And and what are the stakes here? No, 
nope, none of that. No, we're not, they're not going to talk about that at all. We're just going to skip that and get right to like, Bob Marley's great and, and you know, you know, was all about peace and unity. Well, that's nice. And did, and did he bring peace and unity to a divided nation? Uh, well, he had to leave that nation for a while because apparently the political stuff got so contentious that there was an attempted, there was an assassination attempt. Yes. Uh, so he winds up going to England for a while, which is where he records the Exodus album. And we get a couple of really clunky, like, here's, we're writing a song now scenes, which never work in a movie, especially if it's a song that you know. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that, it's that, uh, it's funny. I just rewatched Crossroads for, uh, Breakfast All Day because it just dropped on Netflix for the first time. And there's that whole- Not the Ralph Macchio one. No, no, no. The Britney Spears one. one. The Britney one. And there's that whole scene where like- Anson Mount like sits at the piano and goes, oh, I think I came with a tune for that poem you wrote, you know, and it's, you know, well, I'm not a girl. It's, it's, it's yeah. Right. It, it's, it's a similarly phony in this Bob Marley movie. And, you know, you get, you get a little idea of like his loving, but occasionally contentious marriage with Rita Marley okay. played by the great Lashana Lynch. Uh-huh. Kingsley Benadire, by the way, is just playing Bob Marley. Yeah. And Lashana Lynch, all but steals the whole movie. Like, she's amazing. But you still want more of her and them and their story, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so this this is, it. it's just, you know, it's, you get one of those montages of, like, a, the album climbing, climbing the chart and then the European tour where, right. like, it all looks like the same venue, but it's like, the Netherlands, Belgium. Right. You know, and this movie is doing really well, which... Saddens me not only because it's not very good. Well, it's because people see uh, that there's a movie about Bob Marley. Well, sure, yeah, no people. And, love, and they're like, "Oh, I love Bob Marley. People love let's, Bob Marley. Let's I go get see that. it." Yeah. But it's like I, every time one of these does well, I just think, "Oh, here comes another five of them." Right. You know, it all started. Yeah, I know. It really, I think, started with with um, Bohemian Rhapsody, and it just they just keep coming. Yeah. And you know, as in as in many of these other ones. The, the executive producers include, like, the Marley family. So you know that you're not going to really get any kind of... No no lids are going to be ripped off Were of there, Was he troubled in any way? If so, you're going to have to go read a book about that. Yeah, basically. Yeah, okay. Anything anything too complicated, you know, that might mess with the, you know, the, the public image or whatever gets just smoothed out of movies like this yeah. when, when, when the survivors are involved, you know. Um... So, yeah, it's just a lot of nothing. <laughs> There's not even, like, performance sequences or kind of musical montages that really pop. Like, the songs are in there, and they're, you know, they're they're great. You can't mess up the songs. Uh, is he singing, present- or is it... Oh, he's lip syncing. Lip syncing, okay. But they're yeah. never presented in a way that is dynamic at all. Um, this is from Reynaldo Marcus Green, who did uh, King Richard. And, yeah, it's... Um, it, it 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 just wafted past me. We need to find the name of the documentary. <laughs> I will watch the documentary. Yeah, somebody mentioned in the comments on YouTube there was a documentary like in the early two thousands. Okay, it's supposed to be pretty good. I missed that one. Me too. Well, uh, let's let's trade off then now, and we will talk about the film that I saw. Yes, that you did not, which is a documentary. Mm-hmm. It's called God and Country. 
and you showed me the the, the trailer, and I said, no. <laughs> Rob Reiner had something to do with this, right? He did. He produced it. Okay. Yeah, Rob Reiner produced it, and directed by uh, Dan Partland. It's based on a book uh, by Catherine Stewart. The book is called The Power Worshippers, and it's about the rise of what is now known as Christian nationalism. And, okay. It does a pretty decent job of exploring the rise of the, of the evangelical right-wing political movement mm-hmm. in the U.S. over the past 50-something years. Yeah. Okay. And there are a, uh, a host of people uh, interviewed, talking heads, you know, lots of archival footage. And a lot of disingenuous answers to questions <laughs> you from don't a say. lot of people. I'll explain what I mean by this. A good portion of the people who are interviewed in this documentary about, you know, the rise of, and I'm putting this in quotes, Christian nationalism, and I'll explain while I'm putting it into quotes in a moment. A lot of them are a little fuzzy on their timelines about just how long this has been going on. Now, this could be the fault of editing. Maybe they gave longer answers that were more nuanced and more, uh, you know, uh, detailed. Detailed. But the, to hear some of them talk, you'd have thought that this all got rolling, you know, during Obama. Oh, really? Well, as a response. Right. As a racist response to Obama. And that... Not the moral majority? <laughs> well, the movie goes back that far. Okay. And, and people do start talking about that stuff. Okay. But in the beginning, they say, you know, in the past few years, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> in the past few years. Let's talk about your boy, Ronald Reagan. Anybody want to say his name? Anybody want to say his name? Oh, okay. Later on in the movie, someone says his name. There's a reason why the right-wingers right now hate the expression Christian nationalism. And it's because they didn't think it up. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you hear Marjorie Taylor Greene walk around saying, yeah, I'm a Christian nationalist because she's bad. Sorry, I shouldn't have said You can bleep that. Get the the time code right. Yes. Um, The rest of them... They also put it into quotes because they know that it's the, 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 the left-leaning world that is talking about them this way. They think of themselves as strictly, you know, Jesus-loving conservatives who want to make America great again by destroying everyone that they don't like. So they interview, like, the guy who invented, created Veggie Tales. Man. 
they interview a conservative columnist, a guy named David French, who is so reasonable sounding in this documentary, mm-hmm. but has got no love for the hosts of this podcast. Okay. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, he he likes to position himself as a as a as a reasonable person in between, like oh, okay. the, the 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 fire breathing right wingers who want us all dead, and you know everybody else. He's at the center of his own Overton window. <laughs> yes, yes. He doesn't want he doesn't want you and me married oh, under any no. circumstances. But you know he's praying for us, and he would love mm. for there to be compassion oh, directed at us. I'm like, thanks. you can take your compassion, and yeah. I didn't learn anything that I didn't already know about why uh, this is all happening, right? Because I know why it's happening. People will tell you that it goes back to. Uh, Jerry Falwell in the 1970s focusing on abortion when in reality the abortion issue was sort of chosen as an issue by the by Jerry Falwell and his crew um, because they couldn't say segregation anymore out loud yeah right that's why they got their own Christian schools so that they could legally segregate at their own schools. Now, is this thing you're you're talking about, or is the movie? The movie about this? also goes back to this. Okay, uh, but again, kind of late in the game. Like you'd have thought again from the first thirty minutes that this was all something going on because of Trump, right? And everyone, everyone on camera is just shocked and appalled, <laughs> shocked and appalled that how did it get this way? How did people get so wild? How did this? How did this happen? When did well, we stop being reasonable, Gabe Ashers? When did like we stop me? being reasonable conservatives who want everyone, you know, crushed under their boot? <laughs> and it's because people just started saying it out loud, and now everyone who does, everyone who wants to be polite about it, is aghast. Right. Well, this is your business. These are your folks. Go fix them. I'm editorializing here right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they they took abortion and ran with it because they couldn't take segregation and run with it. Mm. Of course, now they're back to... Yeah, oh, yeah, no, segregation back on the table, blatant, I'm sure. Blatantly racist all over again. But, um, you know, they... Uh, uh, it, it boils down to a lot of things, but... Uh, to several things, but the, the primary one is that the evangelicals got fed up with the with the Republicans, promising a lot of culture war stuff and right. then not delivering. Right. And so they've taken it into their own hands on a grassroots level to take the culture war forward. That's why the whole, you know, rhino thing took, took place, the right. Republican in name only. Because they're like, you just want, you know, the things that every politician wants and you don't want to, you know, bust up 
queer marriage and ruin the lives of trans people and and you know all the stuff that they want to have happen you don't want overt racism to run the run the <laughs> run the show anymore like we're, we're and that is that is what's going on well where's that energy on the left i ask you because you know the democrats pay the same lip service to people who want real progressive change yes and then you know sort of like stay in that corporate backed mushy middle yeah. but you don't see you know uh an equivalent kind of outrage or organ or mobilizing or whatever you know finally the question is asked of many of the interviewees is christian nationalism christian and to a to a to a person they all say oh no 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 well guess what yes it is it absolutely 100 percent is and this is the problem with christianity getting mixed up in the peanut butter of secular life. It is a religion, like all religions, that is open to wildly subjective interpretations on the part of any single person that decides to become one. So if you subscribe to the most hardcore right-wing fundamentalist version of your religion, you're right. And if you subscribe to the most hardcore left-wing progressive, you know, free to labor, free to be you and me, peace and justice, you know, wing of that religion, you are also right. Because there's no one size fits all quantifying authority on what's right. It all boils down to matters of faith and interpretation and interpretation. And none of that can be proven in a lab. So if you if you go to the New Testament and you see the red letters of all the things that Jesus said, and you decide that your eye has offended you, so you're going to go pluck it out, well, you know what? It's in the Bible. Anyway, <laughs> so this is a documentary... Uh, if you're an ex-evangelical who grew up that way, uh, you're not going to learn anything new. You're also not going to super learn any way to fight it. Right. Which I found dispiriting. I guess I'm glad it exists because maybe it'll wake up somebody out there. It. I mean, will it though? I mean, I don't it, know. It, it sounds like it's a way for right wingers to distinguish themselves from hard right wingers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sort of. <laughs> That's that's quite often what's going on in the, in the... and it, and it gives people the safety net of thinking like oh it's not really Christianity because right X Y Z if you know. if you're if you're just a regular polite conservative Christian you can dismiss these fire breathing maniacs yeah um, like guess what all the snake handlers are all Christians too even if right. you know at your at your mellow suburban you know Southern Baptist church you don't have them there right but you don't get to say they aren't part of your club. <laughs> right. So anyway, it's out there. It's called God and Country. Uh, it's in theaters right now. I guess it'll eventually, it'll stream pretty soon. Sure, yeah. And it's, as a documentary, it's fine. But I've, I found myself increasingly irritated by lots of the people being interviewed. It was like, because I was, some of the ones I didn't know their names, I was looking them up and I was like, hey, <laughs> we ain't friends. 
yeah, you and I, me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I didn't see this movie, but it just sounds like it's providing cover for a lot of people who are despicable, but who are covering themselves by being like, "Well, I'm not the, those yeah. crazy Trumpies." We're not. We're know. not that. We're not that group of folks over there. Yeah, yeah. We're not carrying tiki torches. <sighs> Pass. <clears throat> okay, so speaking of Academy Award uh, nominees. <laughs> Although I don't think this was nominated for anything, but it was oh. in the, but it's it, it was it was in the conversation. I watched it as a for your consideration. <laughs> There's a DVD whole podcast screener. called "This Had Oscar Buzz." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's the latest uh, from Ava DuVernay. Oh yes. yes, we haven't talked about this, and it is uh, it is currently in theaters. Yes, right now. Uh, it is called Origin. And it's based on the book by Isabel Wilkerson called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. So, um, now the book is nonfiction. Right. It's not exactly, well, you explain it. The book is nonfiction. The film is also nonfiction, but it is not a documentary. It is a film about... Isabel Wilkerson writing this book and the writing of this book. Now, I have not read this book, but it is my understanding that in the book there are elements of her own personal life. Um, And so I think it made perfect sense to tackle this film in the same way, to cast an actor, like a narrative sort of dramatization of Isabel Wilkerson's experience writing this book. And that actor is Ingenue Ellis-Taylor. Yes. So what you see here is a really unusual... uh, Hybrid? Hybrid uh, sort of film shot in a variety of ways, like sometimes very steadily composed, sometimes seemingly on the fly in international locations. It's still like Ava DuVernay had like a phone <laughs> or something and was just shooting, you know, uh, 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 Ingenue Ellis Taylor in, in, in uh, Mumbai, you know, as she goes to India to, to, you know, study stuff she needs to study to write the book. Um, but so what it comes down to is that Isabel Wilkerson, uh, the person, while writing this book, lost her husband, he died suddenly, uh, young. Yeah. Uh, her elderly mother also died. And her cousin also died. Her very close like cousin. Like sister to her. Yeah. Uh, had cancer and died. And the cousin in the film is played by Niecy Nash. So um, what you get here is filtered through the life experiences of Isabel Wilkerson, you see her studying, you know, the historical elements of how the caste system globally affects everybody. And what people in the United States often uh, attribute simply to racism, or or maybe not simply, but strictly to racism, she has determined through this book that it, 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 it reaches into so many other parts of human experience. Right. She goes to India where they have a caste system that isn't based on race. Right. You know, and, and so, yeah, she's taking a, a larger 
look at it, she goes to Germany to study what the Nazis learned from the United States and the post uh, but Jim Crow Civil War Jim Crow laws and how those laws were adapted by the Nazis to dehumanize the Jewish population in right. Germany and throughout Europe. Um, so what I really like about this film, and how you and I sort of differ on yes. how we how we how we took this movie. Go, you go. And, and oh, then, me first? Yeah, you first. Because I, you were not as enthusiastic about it I, as I, I am. I don't think that on the whole this works. Okay. And I think that there are undeniably powerful moments yeah. that I will carry with me. Yeah. Where they dramatize like a story about a Southern Little League team that yeah. has one player who is black. One black child on this little league team. Yeah. yeah. And they have like a they they have a they win the championships or whatever and they have a party at a public pool hey. where that one black child is not allowed in. He literally is sitting outside the fence on a blanket. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean just like so you know that will will stay with me. Um you know, some of the other there are other individual moments uh about you know sort of incidents that she's talking about or people that she's talking about. And I think that if, like if Duvernay had made a documentary about this book. Like she did with 13th. Like she did with 13th. straightforward documentary. Yes. Yeah. And had chosen to sort of dramatize these elements from the book yes. in the way that she does in this film without couching the entire movie as being basically an origin story of the book. Yes. I think it would have been more successful because as as powerful as Angelique Taylor's performance is, so much of the film is her sitting in libraries, taking notes, doing book things. Oh, see, I found that thrilling. I see. I Watching that, someone go to a library. I find that so non-cinematic. <laughs> um, Ooh, look at the library. Just, like that's... Uh, maybe that's just my yeah well, <laughs> my I, personal thing. I, I don't know. I just I, I thought obviously there's a lot of ideas that she wants to address here that are that are also part of this book, um, but I I don't think this was because she has done a straight docudrama with like you know when they see us uh -huh. and Selma and obviously, Selma, yeah. and then and she has done you know Thirteenth the you know documentary where she wraps her arms around these really kind of complicated issues and makes them, you know, understandable to a mass audience. Yeah. And this movie feels, it's very neither fish nor fowl for me. And mm. I, 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 I was wondering what she was up to and when it was all going to come together. And for me, it just didn't ever. I really just completely disagree with you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I love the way that her personal life intersect intersected not only with the writing process, but also with the content of her study. Like there was this real time nexus of the personal that met the the political and the sociological. Um, like it felt to me like everything amplified everything else. Like as as she is studying ideas about Stigma and dehumanization, these are all things that are discussed in the book uh, uh, cast. Um, you know, uh, prohibitions about property ownership, prohibitions of about marriage, ideas about, you know, 
uh, the purity of a population and the pollution of other people in the population, um, you know, uh, means of enforcement uh, to control populations, like uh, all of that, as she's studying that stuff and it's being reenacted, you know, with historical, uh, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. Um, I found that everything amplified everything else. Like her life and and all the stuff that she's studying and compiling and, you know, putting into this book, to me, it all felt like it was all coming together simultaneously and, and, and meaningfully as well. Whereas I felt the, the stuff that was happening in her life, if this weren't a true story being told, yes. you would never buy it in a screenplay. Because everyone keeps dying. Because everyone keeps dying. Yeah. And because yeah. just the connections between right. her work and her life, which yeah. may well have happened that way, but yeah. but as conveyed in this film that it occupies this weirdly sort of part narrative, part nonfiction space, yeah. it, and it, it's all a, a dramatization. Right. Like there is no documentary element here. Exactly. Yeah. But nonetheless, it is, you know, it is, it is a, I mean, you said before this was a nonfiction film. It's a, it's a, it is yes. a docudrama and it, it yeah. is being, and so because it is being portrayed narratively, you know, real life and narrative don't necessarily overlap and you can, you can tell a story. It's like, no, 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 all this really happened and you don't buy it dramatically. And so to me, it either, it either, it either seemed dramatically false, even though it's real, mm-hmm. or it felt dramatically convenient in a way that made me wonder, is this real mm. or is this all a larger metaphor to push the point that the film's trying to make? I just think it's, I think, formally speaking, it's very, uh, it was a very daring move to do it this way. Agreed. And and to me, I found found that that made it like the fullest version of itself. And it was very moving. It was exactly what I wanted from the story. And it succeeded in making me want to go read the book. I I would like to read the book. um, But I, I don't think this works as a movie. Well, who's wrong? Who's right? Well, the Academy has my <laughs> back. <laughs> Oy. They, they all ganged up together and yes. said, you know what, Alonso, snub. we're snubbing. <laughs> yeah, this is a snub. Uh, Nimona. Yes. Nimona is, uh, let me pull that up. Uh, directed by Nick Bruno and Troy Quain. It is based on a 2015 graphic novel by N.D. Stevenson. And this podcast is dropping on February 19th. And yes. if you listen to it this week and you happen not to be a Netflix subscriber, Netflix is making this film available in its entirety for free on YouTube yes. this week. Yes. So through the 26th. Just this week? Just this week. Only one week only. Yes. Okay. So from the 19th through the, the 26th, 26th of February, you will get to watch this movie for free on YouTube. Um, if you don't already get Netflix. And it is playing theatrically in some limited way, is it not? Uh, it, it opened last summer. It, it I'm might, sorry, what? It, it opened, yeah, it, it opened. We, we were, uh, what? When? We, we were late getting to this one, uh, but it's, it, it is currently nominated for Best uh, Animated Feature. So, yes. yes, in L.A. or New York, it might well be screened oh, somewhere. Oh, all right. So but, it did open theatrically, 
Last, last summer. summer. Yes. Okay. Hmm. I guess I was getting ready for hip surgery Maybe. or something. I don't remember. <laughs> this I, one flew right past there's me. There's a lot to keep up with. And I even, there were even people like, oh, you should see it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure I should. But, you know, I just we, we, we missed it then, but we're seeing it now. Uh, it had a weird history, production history. Yes. My understanding. It started with Blue Sky. Right. And then and the Disney Fox deal happened and it kind of got cut loose. Got, and then yeah. Annapurna and Netflix they, came in to finish it. it. It was unfinished. Yeah. And then Annapurna, Megan Ellison came in and shepherded the production right. through its finish. Um, you want to tell people what it's about? Uh, sure. It is set in a world where there has been a. There was it's a, the Middle Ages with super high. Well, yeah, current we, technology. we we begin in futuristic the actual, technology. We begin yeah. in the actual Middle Ages where there's a there's a kingdom and there's a dragon and there's a a a mighty female warrior who uh, rallies together people to to beat back the dragon, and then we cut to about a thousand years later. Where, yeah, we're, we're in a sort of mix of it's still kind of a medieval looking village, but it's very high tech. Um, and the descendants of those original uh, fighters um, have all, you know, are, are brought in every year to, you know, continue to defend the kingdom against this, this interloper. Uh, our hero is uh, someone who is not of noble birth, but manages to get into this elite dragon fighting program. His name is Ballister Boldheart, voiced by Riz Ahmed. Yes. Uh, his boyfriend uh, is a fellow knight who is very much of one of the one of the old prestigious families named Ambrosius Goldenloin. Um, that's a name. That's a name. Yeah. Voiced by Eugene Lee Yang. And so when uh, Ballister, you know, makes it through training, you know, it's finally it's his big moment. He's gonna he's gonna make it into this elite dragon fighting uh, army. Um, and when he is about to be knighted by the queen, um, a weapon emerges from the hilt of the sword that she has in her hands, and she dies. And Ballister is immediately accused of being an assassin. Everyone is after him. The only person who will help him out is a young girl named Nimona, um, voiced by Chloe Grace Moretz. Who is a shapeshifter? Yes, a, a, she can be a lot more than she seems. She can be a lot of different things. <laughs> yes, uh, on a dime. Yes, yeah. And so, as the two of them try to investigate who set up Ballister and who really killed the queen, um, it brings up uh, uh, historical secrets of the past and uh, inequities upon which their society has been built. Uh, not only does this movie have a queer hero yeah it also is very much a trans on binary metaphor yeah uh, in the way that the nimona's characters handle in the way that people respond to her yes and in her backstory as well yeah um i love this movie i love the way it looks i love the character design i think it's really smart i think the action moves along really well and it gave me a lot to think about i agree with you that it is really smart it is uh, quite often pretty funny. The action moves along very quickly. I appreciate the the matter-of-fact queerness mm-hmm. of it, in which, and by that I mean, it's not an issue that people have to stop and talk about. Right. It just exists. It's there in the same way that you and I just exist and we are there. However. I was going to say, I was waiting for the however. (laughs) 
uh, and I'm speaking strictly personally, aesthetically. Okay. I am not a fan of the character design. Oh, okay. I am not a fan of the look. Hmm. It looks, it looks like a lot of things look now. It looks, it looks cold and digital. Um, the characters all have those big eyes. They have a, a, a series of expressions that I've seen on other characters in other animated features. There seems to be a, a, a limited uh, gesture vocabulary mm. out in the world right now uh, of animation. And when I see it, I know it. And over time, I've become bored with it. Mm. If this were, if this looked different, and if the characters looked different, if it was a completely different style of animation, this would be exactly what I know it wants to be. There are scenes when they are running through, like, hallways mm -hmm. that don't look finished to me. Oh. And I I, I, maybe I'm just... A pain right it's now. entirely possible uh but i was like why does it why hey why does that look like that <laughs> it, i will they say out of time the 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 character design is not as different from the norm as say a movie we have not ever really talked about but i just reviewed on deck the hallmark uh the uh merry little batman uh, animated feature Right, that's on Prime. Like yes. that really, like I was reminded of Ronald, Ronald Searle illustrations. Yeah. yeah, this is this is within the sort of early twenty first century framework. But I thought that within that, it still felt like it, it wasn't just like it didn't feel as assembly line as some other animation. Of like if this were live action, mm. I think I would I would find it thrilling because I would see you know. All the ways that a real face can move. True, and the and the writing is good enough that it would it yeah. would work as a live action. And film. here, I, I was within about twenty minutes. I thought, oh, I have to just keep looking at this. <laughs> All right, fair I'm enough. Gonna, I'm just gonna, I will keep looking at it because I believe I I know already that I believe in this story. But, yeah, it just wasn't visually what I wanted. And if it's what you wanted, or if you're someone who's listening already knows this movie and, and has taken it to your heart, and visually it completely satisfies you, I get it. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the film. I think that I am uh, easily uh, bored and annoyed. Well, you, you have an aesthetic that you... That needs to be met. <laughs> well, my aesthetic is not always going to be met. It is not. And it's not necessarily the fault of the film <laughs> when this happens. It was made for an audience that is not me. There is that. I think that's, you know. For also, the queerness is not something um, as, as great as it is to have it be, like I said, very matter of fact. I'm old. I don't need it, right? If I were young, I would need it. Yeah, but I'm glad. Need, I, I'm, I would need that. It's out there, and here I am, and I can see me 
in a thing. I'm glad it's there, and I'm especially glad that it's gestural there. representation. I, yeah. I kind of feel like the one of the last frontiers is doing this in stuff that is pitched younger, because there was that whole you know, and and that is always the 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 argument that gross people like the the, the God and country folks will throw at you, like oh, we're trying to you know. Uh, indoctrinate indoctrinate children you know no, and it's like yeah, yeah no the queer yeah. children are already that way sleeping and, sleeping beauty indoctrinated your kids not this movie and they would and they Cinderella would, really indoctrinated your kids exactly not this movie and queer kids would like to see themselves in things every yeah. so often yeah um moving on yes to a, another film what do we have left to talk about <laughs> oh we have one more that's it one more film left to talk about. And that film is Disco Boy. Ah, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, it's the first, uh, first narrative feature from uh, Giacomo Abruzzese. 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 Italian director. I am apologizing for killing that name. Uh, stars the great Franz Rogowski. Dude is like MVP of International Art House these days. Um, he was in... Uh, 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 what was it? Passages. Passages, sorry, last year and so many other... He was in, cool you know, things. that one. Yeah, he was in that one. Um, so, it is... Uh, it is primarily about Rogowski's character, a guy named Alexei... But it is also about uh, a man who is a, uh, a, a sort of a freedom fighter in a village in the Niger Delta. And his, the character's name is Jomo. Uh, Rogowski plays Alexei and an actor named Mor Ndiaye uh, plays Jomo. They don't, their, their stories don't like intersect really but they are happening concurrently and so what happens is uh, Alexei is trying to leave Belarus to make his way to France and he is enamored with a kind of idea of France that I think anyone who has seen enough French movies would also become enamored <laughs> with <laughs> Uh, they ask him when he when he comes into France finally, where did you learn to speak French? He says, films. <laughs> but along the way, the friend that he is with, who and they are making a crossing into France. This is they are a wall from their country. They are undocumented. Yeah, sneaking and across the border. The um, and so they get there and and they want that French, you know. Cafe <laughs> life. Bordeaux, pain au chocolat. Yeah. Um, a troubling series of events takes place, and Alexei finds himself uh, stuck and deciding uh, to join the French Foreign Legion because if you serve in the French Foreign Legion for X amount of years, you will get French citizenship. You will get the French passport. Um, so he's like, okay, I'll do it. Obviously, 
France is one of the European colonizing countries and Africa, the African continent is a place where France did this, which is how this connects to Jomo. There are corporate interests that Jomo is fighting against that the Legion is sent to protect. That is correct. Disillusionment follows. And so does a kind of trippy narrative amorphous <laughs> cloud of what's happening to who and why. Does that make sense to you, dear listener? No? Well then, you might be the right audience for Disco Boy because if you're ready to, pull, to, to, to go along with it, I think it will reward you. Um, it's about immigration. It is about the yearning and the longing to be somewhere other than where you are, to have a reality that's different from the one you have been given. Um, and on the part of both uh, men in the story, it is about grim determination to get to the place where you think you need to be. Um, now, you don't like this movie. And I know you don't like it because when it was over, you were so annoyed and, <laughs> and so like, oh my God, could it just be over? There's a post-credits sequence that feels like you're traveling into outer space and there's no uh, explanation for it at all. And by the time it was over, you were like... <laughs> I, I felt you were ready to put your fist through the TV screen. We watched it on a on a on a on a critics screening link. I I feel like there is a there's a version of this story that actually has narrative relevance and impact. Yeah, and I just feel like this director just pisses it all away. <laughs> Because you set up this, the you know, the, this freedom fighter, you set up this guy who is willing to subject himself to the just physical tortures and indignities of being a, a legionnaire. Right. And then there's, their intersection is never handled all that well. There, every, everything where you can see that this, this movie could say or could parallel or whatever it just decides not to, and it doesn't substitute that with something that's equivalently interesting or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, meaningful. And it just, I felt like it, it dithered. It, <laughs> I got annoyed. Dither oh, dithering. It dithered. <laughs> it got on my nerves. And of course, the fact that it was also kind of reminding me of Beau Travai didn't help. Alonzo, you see, uh, everybody listening. Alonzo has been wrong about Beau Travail for uh -huh. a very, a very yeah, long yeah, time yeah. now. Claire Denis' masterpiece, uh -huh. Beau Travail, is a film that Alonzo doesn't care for. I uh, like other films by her, even just though, not that one. Even though he uh, has been told many times by me exactly why and how he is mm -hmm. wrong. And you're wrong um, because you keep saying it's good and clearly <laughs> that is not true. It is, as I said, it's Claire Denis' masterpiece. No, uh, says Trevi. you. So this film very rightly did remind you of Beau Trevi. 
because not it only stinks. Not, not only in the French Foreign Legion uh, uh, stuff, but in in its narrative elements and in its direct uh, allusions, it does recall Beautreville. And in turn, it recalls Godard's Le Petit Soldat. Mm-hmm. There was a film last summer, a very tiny uh, uh, film uh, called Human Flowers of Flesh that also referenced Beau Travail, mm. uh with actual like actors from <laughs> yes. Beau Travail. There are structural, structural commonalities between this and Beau Travail, particularly, and I won't give it away, a, a sequence close to the end. It is called Disco Boy, yes. after all. If you've seen Beau Travail, you might be able to guess what I'm talking about. I believe here, though, um, that the structure of this movie, the compositions on screen, yes, they are quite often mysterious. The connective tissue can be slight, when it comes to associating, you know, what's happening with what one person or what's happening with another person, and how do they how do they make how does this come together? I think those connective tissues can be slight. I agree with you on that, uh, but it makes you do something. It makes you associate the various elements of the film on your own, and sometimes you're having to build them in hindsight. Rogowski. I think is delivering a performance here that is very much in keeping with the kinds of performances that he delivers in other films. It's almost entirely physical. I, I'm I'm hard pressed to remember a thing he says in the movie other than more Bordeaux, you know, <laughs> like. But he has a gift for knowing exactly what his face and body are doing all the time. So yes. Uh, this movie can be a little inscrutable. But the overall effect is what I believe to be a story about how human beings make it insanely difficult for each other to live freely. <laughs> to allow uh, individuals and entire populations, you know, the idea of personal transformation, uh, uh, the very necessary need of migration sometimes, whether it's, you know, in, in geographical terms or in personality uh, terms. The idea of starting over, whether it's inside yourself or in a new place, these elements all become cumulative over the course of the film for me. Yes, and it's sort of a hazy collection of sensory, you know, experiences. But it ends, yes, with mystery, but also with freedom. So I love this. And I love that it's a first-time feature. I love what this guy might be working toward. I'm super into this movie. And I, you and I are, <laughs> are, <laughs> are going to be at odds yeah, uh, over because it here's for, the thing. forever. You set up forever, these, you, you, you set up forever. You set up these parallel storylines, and then what happens to Rogowski's character would be the same whether or not the other character was even involved in it. Yes, and it's like, well, then, 
who cares? Like they, they could have, it could have been a complete stranger character we knew nothing about that wasn't doing anything that was remotely as interesting as the one we do get to know, and the exact same thing would happen. So it's like then, so. I asked myself so a lot in this movie. <laughs> and I don't love Franz Rogowski as much as you do. I Why not? I, he's got that Joaquin Phoenix twitchy, I can always tell you're acting thing going on. Oh, I sometimes. don't think he's acting <laughs> in the way that you are describing. I think I think his face just is built for cinema. Mm. Yeah. Kind of like Joaquin Phoenix's face. A little of both of them goes a long way with me. Well, we agree to disagree. Let's. We got a bunch of letters. Yes. Some of them are about Robbie Williams. <laughs> but most of them are about all of us strangers. Most of them are about all of us strangers. Let's dig right into them. Uh, incidentally, this is the long-promised all of us strangers uh, spoiler talk. Yes. So obviously, if you haven't seen it yet, if you're planning to see it uh, and you don't want it to be spoiled, then, you know, now would be a good time to stop. So maybe before then, why don't you talk about the Patreon real quick? We have a Patreon. Just kidding. Uh, Patreon.com slash linoleum knife. Go there. If you like this podcast and you would like to hear more of us in your life, talk about other things like television shows and music and food and art and politics. And we have a bunch of other, if you'd like to hear us talk about old movies, we do all those things over on Patreon. There are a variety of subscription levels, variety of price points as low as a dollar a month, which would be a grand way Yes, for you to show your enthusiastic support <laughs> for the work that's being done here uh, without it breaking your bank. And get this. Yes. We didn't even do this on purpose because, heaven forbid, we'd be this organized. Yes. All of a Strangers drops on Hulu Thursday, February 22nd. Oh, does it really? Yes. Okay, great. So if you haven't watched it yet, go watch the movie and then come back because we have a bunch of letters of people talking about what they think happened. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, let's talk about the Robbie Williams stuff. First, sure. Though. Uh, you yeah. were flabbergasted that we're getting a Robbie Williams jukebox musical. Yes. Because you thought that outside of the UK, uh, or at least in the United States, uh, only gay men know who he is. Yeah. Well, I we mean, have a, We have a, li- a listener who begs to differ. That's, I, you know... Uh, I'm looking for the. I'm looking for the. Oh, here it is. Okay, there's only one Robbie Williams. Only one Robbie Williams. All right, Tess. Hello, Tess. Hi. Dear David Alonzo, I am a cis straight American woman in my 40s, and I love Robbie Williams. (laughs) I have been a fan for the last 25 years, and I can't seem to get anyone else on board the Robbie Williams train. I was delighted to hear you bring up his album of standards. Swing when you're winning, although technically he has two albums of standards. The other is called Swings Both Ways. Oh, Robbie. Oh, Robbie. You you... scamp. And also, you're also a liar. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, which in addition to the duet, the duet with Nicole Kidman also includes these gems, a duet with an old Frank Sinatra recording of It Was a Very Good Year. I think Celine Dion also did a Frank Sinatra duet around the same time. It was a weird trend. A duet with Rupert Everett to right. They Can't Take That Away From Me. A duet with John Lovitz. <laughs> uh, Cole Porter's Well Did You Ever. Mm-hmm. Guys, this album rules. I still listen to it all the time, and I can't wait for the biopic. Keep the Robbie Williams content coming. <laughs> well, Tess, we're probably not going to mention Robbie Williams again until the biopic comes out, but you never know. Oh, and you, I am totally watching this biopic. Of course you are. Oh, I, someone else just told me that there was like a, 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 a docu-series about him as well oh. that recently dropped on American TV, and I was like, well, how come... Listen... Again, They're not marketing it again, right if we didn't hear about it. They are not pushing this hard enough <laughs> if they think that people are going to care by the time this movie comes out. <laughs> like I said last time, hey everyone, it's a movie about a singer who really exists, only you've never heard of him, and he's really famous everywhere except where you live. Oh yeah, there's a Netflix documentary series yeah. called Robbie Williams, uh, and it's four parts. It dropped in November. Yeah. I told you that they were going to conspire to make him a household name. It was the last thing they did. Yeah. Uh, Morgan says, this might have been a fever dream, but I think you mentioned in the episode where you covered all of us strangers that you would come back in a later episode when you had more time to discuss the film's more spoilery plot elements. No worries if we're past the zeitgeist at this point, but I would love to hear more of your thoughts about it. All the best, Morgan. Well, Morgan. That time is now. You're here. It's now. It's happening now. And boy, speaking of snubbed by the Academy, this film got zero nominations despite winning Nothing. Best Screenplay yeah. from the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and Best Actor yeah. uh, for Andrew Scott from National Society of Film Critics. Julius says, Hi, queer cinema elders. <laughs> I love a good contentious debate, and I might be on a different side of it than you. P.S. If you've read this on air, you don't need to. Uh, feel free to edit for length. <laughs> Wait, how long is this letter? It's Oh, this is a long letter. Yeah, but okay. you know, this is the episode we're doing it, so let's do it. He says, I don't like Andrew Haig's films, but not because they're bad. They're quite good, and I recommend them to most young queer folk, but I think Haig's movies come to me three to five, two, three to five years too late in my personal journey for me to say, this hits hard. Uh, for instance, if I had seen Weekend when I was 25 instead of 30, I might have been like, OMG, this is me. <laughs> instead of, oh God, not this basic whiny mm, again. Similarly, if I had seen All of Us Strangers five years ago, I'd have been able to sink my teeth into the bittersweet nostalgia about what might have been far more readily than I want to now. But listening to your initial pre-review made me think of the conversations I had on this after the Seattle Queer Film Festival screening last October. I'm going to dive right into spoilers because the ending colored my view of the movie, but the ending is the most contentious. Mm. From the moment the movie tells us that the mysterious man in the leather jacket that Adam cruises in a park at the beginning of the film, I knew we were in for a lot of rug pulling. And I do mean there is a lot of rug pulling. Once we figure out 
that the young people Adam is visiting is ghost mom and ghost dad, and that they are all still about Adam's age, I kind of thought that Adam was dead, <laughs> and we were in some sort of mopey, gay, COVID-tinged version of defending your life. <laughs> With Harry... Adam's lover, in the Meryl Streep role. <laughs> the ending doesn't really discourage that reading. I, I have heard more than one person suggest that maybe Andrew Scott is also dead. Mm. Okay, I didn't get that. No, I didn't me think, neither. I didn't think of Andrew Scott's but character but as But that theory is out there. Okay. Adam begins the movie in an empty London high-rise where he sees nobody except uh, Paul Mescal. Harry. Harry. Viewers are encouraged to read a COVID sort of isolation into the fact that we see nobody else there. But is it that we see nobody else there because it's the real world or because we're in a form of purgatory where Adam has to reconcile all of the loose threads in his life? All of Us Strangers is a little more than the late-in-life coming-out fantasy that is usually thrust upon either gay teen movies or gay geriatrics who are in the closet their whole lives. By killing off mom and dad when Adam is young and bringing them back as ghosts for Adam's middle age, Haig creates a scenario where an open and out middle-aged gay man can have a coming out to his family story. Add in a fantasy gay lover who we later find out possibly died because Adam rejected him once, and you have a concoction for gay narcissism posing as a mopey ghost story. <laughs> I think the reaction to this film is going to depend on your age, your station in life, your history, your tolerance for the queer staple of coming out to your parents, and reconciling your gay life with them. I think younger people might still be reconciling their parents if they have a more conservative upbringing. I think older people are tending to look more at what might have been and seeing all the roads and paths that had been laid out for them. I'm right between those groups where I'm not much on looking back just yet and my relationship with my parents is where I want them to be. Also, your reaction might depend on your tolerance for the movie having Adam Cruz, his younger ghost dad, which, <laughs> ugh. <laughs> that was the low point of the movie, and I can't get that out of my head, largely because it was leading me down a different expectation of the treatment of isolation. I thought for a hot minute that the movie was going to take on the parallels of COVID isolation and the connection of anonymous cruising. That would have been the movie I'd want to see. Instead, we get blah, blah, parental coming out junk, and I'm like, why did you have Adam cruising his dead gay dad movie? Are you trying to say something sly about gays having daddy issues? I hope not, because that's really old hat. I'm more hung up on this movie's daddy issues than I am about my own, and Joe Gage would probably love this aspect of the film. <laughs> Straight people, if you Google Joe Gage, don't. I can't help you. Okay, just don't. That said, there is a lot of space for a film as you... And I'm not saying don't. I'm just saying, you know, you're, you're on your own. Proceed with caution. Okay. That said, there is a lot of space for a film as unique and bizarre as this. It's a film I admire for its brass balls and filmmaking skills more than I like it. There is thematic depth to the way it treats being haunted by memory of missed opportunities and what-ifs. Just yesterday, an ex from long ago clicked on my LinkedIn profile, and I fell into a mini what-if hole before deciding, nah, <laughs> this is a movie that dwells in those what-if holes, as I've seen men older than me do, including in post-coital relaxation. <laughs> if you don't think that Adam is dead throughout the film, then those ghosts are just what-ifs, and Adam dwells on them until he dies to the tune of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. <laughs> For all of my this-ain't-for-me posturing, I think the way it ends is amazing. 
Frankly, if I had to go out, Frankie Goes to Hollywood would be somewhere close to the top of the music selection I'd want to hear on my way to whatever happens when you die. Julius. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you on some of that, Julius. Certainly the idea of it's a movie that I admire more than I love. And this letter is from Robert. I saw all of the strangers and I wanted to share my thoughts after hearing your earlier episode. I loved Andrew Haig's previous film, Lean on Pete, mm -hmm. and found this one even more moving as a film about male loneliness, yearning for connection and dealing with the grief of a past that no longer exists. For context, I'm a straight man in my late 20s, living in a major city away from my family, so I carried all of that with me while watching the film. Hmm. The loneliness and yearning for connection experienced by Andrew Scott's character resonated. I'm close to my parents, but there are other members of my family who have chosen to no longer be in contact and whose absence I grieve. One of the most moving moments was the conversation in bed between Scott and Claire Foy, detailing all of the holidays, holidays they might have taken had she lived. When the mother asks her son, did we make up after fighting? And he responds, we didn't need to make up. It was enough to know that we got to come home together. That felt like such a true moment embodying the love shared between a mother and son. Another great thing about the film is the way it doesn't over-explain the end. I imagine in a lesser movie it would have had to cut to a flashback montage of Andrew Scott by himself. Example, in Joker, where Todd Phillips shows Joaquin Phoenix's mm. relationship with Zazie Beetz that was all in his head. I've been listening to Linoleum Knife since my early 20s, and it's allowed me to seek out films like All of Us Strangers, and in turn, share them with my own family. I look forward to going back home in a few months and being able to share this with them. As a longtime listener and semi-regular letter writer, thank you again, Rob. Thank you. And are there any others? Is this it? No, the donut Chris Robles had some thoughts. Ah, uh, yes. Here he Great. Let me find it. Where'd he go? Can you pause it while I dig up his letter? Okay. Because I can't locate I found it. Finally. Hi, David Alonzo. Hi, donut Chris Robles. Guess Hello. what? I made the olive oil chocolate cake that you texted me. And, oh, oh God. <laughs> And if you're a Patreon subscriber, you it can hear us talk about it on cake, Linoleum Knife and Fork. That cake got rave reviews and devoured almost immediately yeah. by a variety of people. Yes. Um, so good. And, uh, yeah. Oh, man. I'm, I'm going to be talking about it on, on Linoleum Knife and Fork. But <laughs> thank you for the, the olive oil chocolate cake, chocolate cake recipe. Okay, anyway. He goes on and says, I hadn't thought about All of Us Strangers since you mentioned it on the podcast the other day, and you mentioned what I posted on Instagram. I think partly I thought it was going to be more of a spooky gay ghost mystery, <laughs> and then it was more of a straightforward drama with ghostly elements, and I'm not sure why I thought it was going to be gay Hercule Poirot with ghosts. <laughs> but that's not a bad idea for a movie. Sure. Would watch. I also thought it was cheesy. Mm. Which I later read some other reviewers recommending just let yourself go with the movie and ignore the, the twee bits. I do think the scenes with Claire Foy and Jamie Bell are excellent and touching, but something about the setup and the other storyline, I won't spoil, just didn't work for me. Mm. All right, so y'all, here are the spoilers. Uh, Andrew Scott's character meets uh, Paul Mescal's character. Adam meets Harry. Paul Mescal's character. They are seemingly the only tenants of a gigantic high-rise high -rise building in, in, in London. London. 
Paul Mescal's character is roaring drunk, like blackout drunk when they meet. And Paul Mescal wants to get down like that with Andrew Scott. And Andrew Scott says, no, no, I'm sending you back to your apartment. Sleep it off. Go sleep it off. But it's too late. He is blackout drunk and he has, he succumbs to alcohol poisoning and is dead. Everything else that you see from the moment, from that moment on is Andrew Scott's fantasy of having uh, Paul Mescal as a boyfriend. Which we've all had. <laughs> Especially after seeing this movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, 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 basically, that one, the only real meeting they have is when Paul Mescal knocks on his door. Meaning that he's a blo- Andrew Scott's character is a blocked screenwriter. And as a sort of process that he's going through and, and sort of excavating the meaning behind his own loneliness, he finds himself talking to his long-dead parents. Yes. They died in a car accident when he was 12, and he was sent to live with, I think, his grandmother? I think so. And... And now and they 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 are played by Claire Foy and Jamie Bell. And Jamie Bell. And they're in his childhood home, the same age that they were when they died, which means they're now basically the same age as Andrew Scott. Yes, and so he goes to the house and he talks to them. He has a series of conversations with them about what his life is like now. Yeah, and what kind of family would they have become, and what would they have done together as a family, and. And he comes out to them. He comes out to them and they both are like, oh, well, okay. You know, like it's, it is, there's no, there's none of the, 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 the anxiety of. There's no, I have no son. Yeah. There's none of that. Um, but there is that very real yearning on the part of Andrew Scott's character for a life with his family. Yeah, the the you know, as somebody who and you know this very well. Yes, my I lost my mother when I was seventeen, um, and so uh, yeah, the, the, you know, she never met Dave. She never held one of my books in her hand. You right. Know, we never had a relationship where I was an adult. Right. Um, and so yeah, there, that is always sort of this thing that that will always elude me and that I'll always wonder about. So that part of the movie really resonates with me. Yes. Where it fell apart for me was that I didn't feel like the the I'm lonely and I'm hanging out with a ghost boyfriend part meshes with the I'm I'm catching I'm making up for lost I'm time still with grieving. my dead ghost parents. Yes, yeah. uh, I think this is uh, a very I think very this is a, for me. I didn't read it as a very convoluted or what's really happening kind of film. Yeah, I I was very straightforward about the parents. The, about the only, halfway through it, I thought. Wait, is Paul Mescal dead? Like, and in my head, I thought this. I, to be honest, I'm such a dummy. It didn't occur to me at all until Paul Mescal was reticent about going into the house where the parents were. Yes. And then I was like, oh. Yeah. My God, okay. And so when when it turned out that, yes, he has been dead this entire time, I thought, okay, so this is a ghost story about loneliness. And it's about uh, how you can have everything that the world tells you that you get after you come out and have a, a, a regular adult queer life. You mm-hmm. know, the it gets better narrative. Right. Right? Well, what if it doesn't exactly get better? 
what if you keep that stuff that you grew up with, all the, the, the traumatic stuff that you grew up with? What if it keeps you from finding, you know, a uh, uh, connection with other people in your life? What if it, what if it makes your adult life so complicated and difficult internally, emotionally, that you, you know, uh, uh, you, 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 you never do quite get to connect with other people. Maybe not even romantically necessarily. Right. Like, what if it's emotionally. just, what if you're just sort of like not great at, at communicating with your friends? What if you can't tell your friends what you need? Uh, uh, and, and, and they in turn don't give you what you need because you can't tell them and you don't know how that becomes its own form of, of loneliness. So I think that's ultimately what this film is about. I don't think Andrew Scott's character is dead. I think he is very much alive and very much dealing with the past and how it has shaped his present. This is also based on a Japanese novel. Yeah. Uh, that is more of a horror story because it's about a guy who becomes uh, uh, who grows close to these ghosts who look a lot like his dead parents, yeah. and then later discovers that they're sapping his life force. Yeah. But Haig sort of took that aspect out of it yes. and just made it more about this meditation about about missed opportunities and loneliness and and you know how you become an adult when so many of the of the, the the pieces of you are still kind of broken in a way from childhood. You know, um, I would, I personally do not see this or any sort of uh, queer story about complicated adult life. Uh, I don't, I don't think of these things as as whiny. Um, I think that the world does a number on queer people from the from the moment they are little children. And that's including in otherwise progressive uh, uh, times in history. Like, we, we, we often say to people, you know, oh, you came out and everything turned out all right, and your parents accepted you and you've got friends, and now it's time to get over it. Right? It's time to get over what happened to you before right. all this. It's time to get over all of the bizarre conditioning and all of the bizarre lies that they tell you about yourself, that you're going to be lonely, that you're going to be unhappy, that you're going to be miserable, that you are somehow defective because you are queer. If you can get over all of that stuff, then you are a powerful entity. There's a sequence in the movie Bros that, de- that stops the comedy cold in its tracks. Mm-hmm. And it's when, 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 uh, uh, the, the Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane. Billy Eichner and Luke McFarlane talk about their childhoods and how it screwed them up and how it's keeping them from being happy in relationships, in their work, just in life in general. It's a pretty funny movie up to that point, and it's a pretty funny movie after that point. But in that moment, there are these two long sequences where they're just talking to each other very seriously about their gay oh, trauma. Oh yeah, remember how that happened? Why do you think it why do you think we are like we are now? It's because of that stuff. And I remember hearing people tell me that they thought that was whiny. And I was like, "Well, who gets to who gets to to have a problem in their past yeah. that affects their present? Who gets that?" To to address Does it anybody into, get that? Yeah. And I think this is a really successfully uh, realized 
exploration of that stuff from a non-comedic perspective, from yeah. a, a, a heartbreakingly dramatic perspective. I don't think Adam Scott, or Adam Scott, Andrew Scott <laughs> yes. as Adam, I don't think Andrew Scott dies at the end. Am I wrong? Oh, I don't think he dies at the end. Okay. I think he is, I think he is still involved in this fantasy yes. of, of protecting this person that he could not protect. Right. From I the think hooded claw. The song, yes, the <laughs> song choice is incredibly real yes. at the end because Frankie Goes to Hollywood's song, The Power of Love, is about taking care of someone. It's about taking care of someone. And there's literally a spoken intro that says, I'll, I'll, I'll protect you from the hooded claw, keep the, the vampires, vampires from your from door. Your door. And and that is what I think he is experiencing at the end of the film. He's 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 going to st stay in that fantasy for a while. Yeah. That he gets to rescue Paul Mescal, even though he couldn't have done anything for him. Right. Like it was he was already again blackout drunk. Yeah. There was nothing even he if could he'd do. come in, he he would just have died in Andrew. Yeah. Scott's he would have died in your bed, dude. Yeah. yeah. So like that's, I think what the ending is. I love this movie. It was it brutalized me. <laughs> I will watch it so, again. Yeah, at some point. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that is our long promised uh, all of the strangers <laughs> spoiler discussion. Watch it on Hulu. Uh, watch it again on Hulu. See yeah. what you think. Um, Thanks for listening, everybody. Please check me out on the other podcasts that I do, Breakfast All Day on YouTube and uh, on your favorite podcatcher. Also, uh, Maximum Film on the Maximum Fun Network and Deck the Hallmark. Um, you can uh, subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll read it on the show. You can also leave positive feedback in the many places that we stream, including Spotify and iHeartRadio and YouTube Music and Amazon Music and pa CastBox and Podbean. Um, drop us a line at linoleumpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at linoleumcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Blue Sky. Thank you, Blue, for our theme music he's at bleu.bandcamp.com uh i have a book out in may but i'll be bugging you about that much I'm more sure in the months to come oh and by the way I, I, by bringing up that word whiny i wasn't directly refuting anyone who used that word in a letter it's something that i've heard a lot sure. from a lot of different people so you're not being you're not being called out. Right. Uh, if I, <laughs> but it raises the question. But like, it does. That do is we, a question that to, lingers over this do film. Do we get yes. to talk about these things yeah. without being accused of just, yeah. you know, me? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody, I for I could listening. do whiny all by myself. <laughs> we'll be back next yeah. time with more. Until then. Goodbye.